Two years ago this week, our world changed drastically. It was two years ago, it was the second week of Lent, mid-March, second week of March, whenever the world changed very, very drastically. Um, I remember uh, it, was, it was the second Sunday of Lent, was the last time that we had a public mass with whoever and everybody, a full church. Um, and within three days, we were celebrating Mass, myself and Father Noah at the time, we're celebrating Mass to an empty church. It's two years ago this week that our world changed very, very drastically. It was only a couple of days later um, that, uh, well, in, the, in that span of three days, we, we watched um, basketball games, professional basketball games, college basketball games get canceled, and then all of a sudden we started hearing that, uh, that schools, um, and parents might have a little PTSD with this, but um, that schools would all of a sudden be, we're going to do this thing called online learning, um, and this online learning is going to happen at your kitchen table, and then... Our, our, our jobs and things like that, everything was starting to shut down and, and work remotely, all language that was foreign to us then, but now is just aggravating to us. Within three days, we went from gathering in a church a public, for public worship um, to all being relegated to our homes, um, but at least traffic was very, very good, right? Two years ago this week, as a priest, in my first year as a pastor, getting ready and excited to celebrate, uh, to walk through Lent and to get to Easter and to have this massive, beautiful Easter celebrations with the parish, all of a sudden we went from full churches to empty churches. We went to celebrating Mass in a closet and having people that would come and pop in and show their face and just want to come in, but they couldn't because we couldn't have public Mass. And um, yeah, we, we became a an expert in all things live streaming, which I don't know if there's something that causes my gag reflex to kick in quicker than the words live stream at this point. As we started to come out of COVID and out of that first wave and that first hard time, and we started to kind of open the church back up, I remember there was a part of me that was very, very excited just to be able to have mass with people. Even if faces were covered, even though we were spaced out, even though we had to go through the pain in the butt that was cleaning up the church after and wiping down all the pews and all this other stuff, at least people were together. At least we were coming to worship God. And I couldn't wait because I knew when the doors to the church opened up that all of a sudden, masses amounts of people were going to come back in. And that's not what happened. <laughs> Now, some of that was because of prudence with the disease and, and a virus we didn't know much about. Some of that was because um, just, just your, your, our own decisions because we just have to protect our family members or ourselves. But a part of that also, I remember hearing this sentiment, and I heard this from a few people, I heard this from a few different people um, during the course of these couple of weeks and months after we started to reopen, of saying, Father, man, I... I like, I like going to church and all, that's one thing, but you have no idea how easy it is to be able to celebrate, and, and how awesome it is and convenient it is for me to be able to celebrate Mass with you on a live stream with a cup of coffee in my pajamas and not have to worry about bringing the kids to church. And if you said that, it's okay, 
I'll hear your confession later, right? Because it was, it was easy. It was. There was something about it that we could, I, I heard from somebody that they were doing, they were going to mass in their duck blind. That they would bring their phone, they would do live stream, and they would, oh yeah, uh, the Lord be with you. Bang! Right? Like, this is how they were going to mass. Because it was convenient, and even if I wasn't ready and available at that time, I could always just backtrack and I could watch you later on in the day. But I have a question, there's, there's something about, I remember talking with a group of priests right about that time, right about that, that summertime period, um, and we were just kind of questioning, man, are people going to come back to church? It's beautiful to see a full church, right? But like, are people actually going to come back? Are they going to care enough to come back to church? Or has it just become too convenient for everybody? I remember one priest saying that, that COVID is the reason. COVID is going to be like kind of a plague, a blanket, a shade of sorts that is going to really hurt the church. That it's COVID's fault. And I used this analogy. I said... COVID just sped up something that was already happening. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit, hit Louisiana. We know this. And when Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana, they have done different studies that have said 30 years worth of damage for coastal erosion happened in three days. That 30 years worth of damage because of the storm surge and everything else that happened, the winds and the, and the rain and everything, that, that 30 years worth of damage happened in a matter of three days after hurricane, just during Hurricane Katrina. 30 years of erosion happened in three days. I said, if that's the case, COVID just did 30 years worth of damage in three months. Because the stats have been there. Different, different organizations have looked and saw that mass attendance has kind of been on the decline. That people that, that, out of all the people that say, I am a Catholic, that usually a high mark is 20% of Catholics actually go to church on Sunday. That, that's just been kind of the trend. That less and less people actually go to church. Actually come together to worship on Sundays. Now, I don't know about you, um, but if I'm doing anything in my life and I'm only successful 20% of the time, I am failing miserably at whatever I'm doing. 20% is nothing. So many people have come, and, and I think a lot of people ask the question of, why is it that we do what we do during Mass? Why does worship in the Catholic Church look the same way it did in the, from, from 50 years ago? Why is it that what we do, we do it every week the same way? Like, I've had people ask me, Paul, why, why don't we, like, spice it up a little bit, right? Like, why, why, don't you, why don't we, like, not do the altar thing? We can move that out of the way. Why don't we do, like, a band and a stage or some better lighting, or, which we need? But um, why, why don't we do, like, a coffee bar in the back and we can do, like, some, some, some visiting and things like that? And I, I think those are fair questions. But there are only two possible answers to those questions. Either the church is stubborn, 
Either the church is stubborn, doesn't really care about the fact that people are walking away from her, doesn't really care about anything else that's going on. The church is just stuck in its ways in this archaic way of worship, and that's how it's going to be. And say la vie, tough stuff, that's about it. That's option one. Option two is that the church sees that there is something more important that we're holding on to something that's more important than we might understand. That there's something greater and something bigger that happens here in the Mass. Especially in the quote-unquote boring part after the homily. Well, I can promise you one thing, that it's not just because the church is stubborn. So what we, myself and Father Bruce, as we've been kind of approaching this month, um, as we've been approaching this kind of time for us in this Lenten season, and particularly speaking to where we are and what we're hearing coming from just people and conversations and things, what we want to do is, is over the next five weeks, we want to break open a Bible study of sorts. So that you and I can come to a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of why it is that our Mass looks like it actually does. If five weeks can change the way that you look at the Catholic Church, change the way that you approach God, change the way that you experience the Sunday liturgy, would you be willing to invest five weeks in a Bible study during the homily so we can come to a better appreciation on where we get the Mass from and what's actually taking place? Because in five weeks, I guarantee you, you will know and understand that what we do on Sunday is not our doing. It's not our making. And there's a reason why it looks and sounds the way it does. So as we jump, jump in, I think the first question we have to ask is, does God care about worship? Is God really focused? Is God really concerned about worship? If we look at in the bulletin on the last page, the la the, uh, number four, what is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, and you shall not have strange gods before me. You shall together worship me and me alone. Now all ten commandments are important. All ten commandments we come to believe. But the first one is the first one for a reason. It's the first one, it's the main one for a reason. Because God is saying that if you get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. That if we get this, if we miss this part, it doesn't matter if you don't kill. Because you miss the first step of what it means to live in relationship with me. That God is God and I am not. You and I, whether we realize it or not, as human beings, we are made to worship. We will worship something or someone. 
If you don't believe me, I, I, I promise you, the thing that you think about in the morning, the thing that you do with your free time, like whatever it is that is your top priority in life, if it's hunting, you're going you're gonna to do all kind of crazy stuff to make sure that you can hunt. You're going to think about the best ways and the best times to go out and to hunt, right? Because the top priority is going to dictate what we do. We're going to worship something, whatever that top priority is. And God is saying in this first commandment, very, very simply, I want you to worship me. I want to be that top priority. In today's gospel, we look, at, we look at the way Jesus brings James, John, and Peter up the mountain of the transfiguration. And in this moment, whenever he's transfigured, so his earthly body starts to glow, essentially. And they start to see a glimpse of what his resurrected body would look like. And they see Jesus now glowing in his resurrected kind of state. And they hear the voice of God the Father say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And while they're standing there and having this image, a cloud kind of engulfs them and kind of comes and descends upon them. And present, they have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in the cloud. And we didn't read Matthew's Gospel today, but Matthew's Gospel says that as the apostles were there and they saw this image, they fell and they prostrated themselves before Jesus. Now prostration, if you're wondering what that is, it's fallen flat on their face in worship. Because they recognize that they are before the divine. They are before God himself the one they have come to believe, the one they have come to know, they know in their hearts that they worship the divine. They worship God. And without even thinking, boom, they fall flat on their face. Now, Father, why would they do that? Well, because laying down before somebody and covering your face is a more reverent position than kneeling which is a more reverent position than standing, which is a more reverent position than sitting. That's why right now, because I'm talking, you're all sitting. But a couple of minutes ago, when we were breaking open the gospel, the most important books of the Bible, we were all standing. And in a couple of minutes, when we get to the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is the most important part of the Mass, we'll all be kneeling. Our body speaks the language of worship just like the apostles' body spoke the language of worship on the mountain of the transfiguration. We can come to understand why is it and how is it that we worship the way we do. Now for us to do this, we got to get a little bit of context. So the person that we're going to follow today is going to be Moses. Because if we go back to the book of Exodus, we can come to a better understanding and appreciation of the context of worship. So let's start with some, with some context about the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. You may be thinking, when you hear the book of Exodus, we can think Moses. And when we think of Moses, we think of Pharaoh and the plagues in Egypt. You might be thinking, if you're of a certain generation, Charlton Heston's uh, Let My People Go. 
And if you're of my generation, at least for me, every time I hear this story, the first thing I think of is Tommy Pickles in Rugrats saying, let my babies go, right? If you haven't seen that cartoon, go look it up. It's fantastic. Anyway, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, we know the story. The Egyptians are enslaving the Hebrew people. Moses is the leader of the Hebrew people. He comes to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. That phrase, that very, very popular phrase from the Old Testament is not just about let my people go from slavery or let my people go from Egypt so we can go to another subdivision or to some, more better, some better property. What Moses is saying is let my people go so that we may go into the desert, go into the wilderness to offer sacrifice so that we can go and we can go to worship our God. The phrase, let my people go, is about worship. We know the story. Pharaoh says, no, there are ten plagues. After the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally says, get out. They start to walk away. Pharaoh second guesses it. They come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea opens up. Hebrew people walk through. Israelite, I mean, uh, the Egyptians follow them. Once the Hebrew people get through, Moses turns around, closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians. They become fish food, and now they're free. It's the book of Exodus according to Father J.D. There you go. But now, the, the, now they have gone through, they have, they're released from the, 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 um, the Egyptian rule. And the Hebrew people find themselves in the desert, and they come to Mount Sinai. When they come to Mount Sinai, Moses is going to take on a new role. Because God was speaking to Moses the same way he did to Abraham, like in our first reading, the same way he did to Noah, the same way he did to Adam and Eve. God was speaking to Moses. But Moses is going to take on a new role where he becomes the mouthpiece of God to the people. So Moses goes up the mountain. And when he goes up the mountain, he sees God face to face and they talk. And God says, number seven, while Israel was encamped there in front of the mountain of Sinai, Moses went up the mountain of God. Then the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Now if you obey me completely, completely and keep my commandment, you will be my treasured possessions and all peoples, though all the earth is mine. God says, Moses, if you pass on my commandments, if you pass on and, 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 and share with the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, what it is that I want to promise them, the relationship that I want to be in with them, you all, Israel, will be my chosen people. You will be mine, and I will be your God. Moses comes down. After hearing four chapters of the Bible, four chapters of the, the way in which God wants him to live. He's face to face. God tells him, this is how I want you to live. And this is what I want you to do. The Ten Commandments were the first ten things he said. And after that, he kept going. Four chapters of the Old Testament. I'm asking you how to live. Moses comes down, shares the four chapters with the people. And under number eight. When Moses came to the people and related all the words of the Lord, they answered with one voice, together, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. All together, 
We will do everything that the Lord has told us. One more time. We will do everything that the Lord has told us. Now, I had a hard time, and you can ask my parents about this, I had a hard time listening to one sentence and doing it right when I was a kid, right? If that's the case, do you think that the Israelite people are going to listen to God on all four chapters and do everything that the Lord has told us? Probably not. They will probably fall short. So Moses goes back up to the mountain. After they've heard how they're supposed to live, after they've heard how they're supposed to, to, to order their life and order everything that they do, first commandment being the first thing that he said to them, they came back up. And now Moses is taught again face to face with God of how it is that he wants them to worship. Exodus 25 to 31. Seven chapters of the Bible. God is telling his people how he wants them to worship. He only spent four chapters on how he wanted them to live, but he spent seven chapters on how he wants them to worship. For example, God tells Moses, he says, you know those ten commandments that I gave you, the, the two tablets that you came down and you gave to the people and you showed to the people? I want you to take those two tablets, I want them, you to put them in a box, but I want you to make this box out of precious metal, not because God's bougie, not because God has like a certain status that he needs to hold up. No, no, no. It's because I want you to show that this box is important, called the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to travel with this box, keeping me always in front of the Israelite people. And as you're traveling, whenever you settle, I want you to light a lamp to show that I'm present with you and as a constant reminder that I'm with you at all time. And then I want you to put two angels, two golden angels on either side of this box, adoring, so that you know how it is you're supposed to approach me in adoration and love. I can't think of any place that we would have a golden box that would have the presence of God within it that would have a lamp on the side of it that would show that God's presence is here with us at all times, always. And if you've been to some churches, you might even find next to the tabernacle two statues of angels adoring the Lord as a constant reminder of how we're called to approach God himself present among us. See, so much of what we do we think goes back to Jesus in 2,000 years ago. But the way we celebrate Mass, the way we come to approach the Lord in these kind of services, in the Mass itself, the way our churches are set up, is actually about 4,000 years old because it goes back even to Moses in the way that God asked them to worship Him. But Jesus fulfills it, and we don't just stay in the Old Testament. But back to Moses, the details that Moses receives, he receives seven chapters of these kind of details of how he want, how God is asking to be worshipped. Now, when I was growing up, um, when I was growing up, now that I've grown up at every point in my life, whether I was 10 years old, whether I was 15 years old, whether I was 20 years old, and now that I'm 32 years old, 
Um, my father to this day does not let me mow his grass. My dad to this day does not let me touch his lawnmower or mow his grass. And the reason why he doesn't let me is because the first time when I was a kid that he asked me to mow his grass, I didn't do it right. I think I was eight. And I was on the riding lawnmower, I'm going through the yard, and I think I cut the corner a little bit too quick. So what that left was right behind it, it left one little patch of grass, right? And it was that one little patch, and it was an eyesore on a perfectly manicured yard. And he looked at me and he said, yep, he ain't ever cutting my grass again. I was, a 20, I was an 18, 20-year-old that was studying electrical engineering at LSU. And my dad didn't think I was confident enough to cut the grass, right? But why, did, why, why is it such a big deal? Because my dad pays attention to every little detail in his yard. He's got a particular way that he likes to cut his grass. He's got a particular way that he likes to cut kind of the awkward corners in the yard. He's got a particular way that he likes to finish it off where he sweeps the grass into the bayou. He's got a particular way how he likes to do all these things. And I'm sure there's no wives sitting in here that are nudging their husbands at all because because it's only my dad that has a particular kind of mindset like that, right? But he has a particular way because he's focused on the details because my dad cares about his grass. What my dad has particular details about is something that is important to him. In the same way, if you ask me to put together the best schedule for an LSU tailgate, I can do that for you. Because I know the best time to go to the hill is about 90 minutes before kickoff. Because the band's going to be, you're going to catch the team in the band. I know that the student section opens about two and a half hours before kickoff. I know the best places to park. I know the best time to get there. And all those kind of things. Why? Because I know the details because it was important to me. What we know the details about signals what is important to us. What we can communicate details about signals what is important to us. God spends seven chapters telling the Israelite people how he wants to be worshipped, down to what kind of metal he wants the Ark of the Covenant to be made of. I think it's safe to say that worship is important to God. But while this is going on, where Moses is face-to-face with God and hearing all these details, we probably know the story, but what's happening back down off the mountain? Number 10. When the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us as for the man Moses was brought us, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. These are the same people that just before, as we all said, we will do everything that the Lord has told us, including the first commandment, and they've already, because Moses is out the way, because it looks like God has abandoned them, it looks like they don't know when they're going to hear anything, they revert back to worshiping whatever they can find. Aaron replied, Aaron's second in command to Moses, 
Take off the golden earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He received their offering and fashioning it with a tool made a molten calf. They went from worshiping and following a God who brought them from slavery, worshiping and following a God who parted the Red Sea in front of them, worshiping and following a God who did all of these plagues and all these miraculous things in Egypt. And the moment they feel like he's not around, that he's not paying attention to them, they revert back to worshiping gold. How many times in your life, when you don't think God's paying attention to you, do our eyes drop off of him and we start to look for something else to take our attention? We start looking for something else to fulfill a space that God was supposed to have, but he must be busy. And my gaze and my worship falls to something that's not worthy of it. I think what happens a lot of times in, the, in, our, in our faith, and I'll say this for, for, for kind of as a, as a, to wrap it up, is that we have this understanding, we have this kind of false idea, this kind of broken image of how we relate to Jesus. I know for me, a lot of times I can look and be like, yeah, Jesus is my equal, my coworker, my buddy. We just kind of, kind of walk through life together and it's all good. And his opinion's good, but my opinion's good too. Yeah, Jesus does walk with us because he's a man. Jesus has shown us the way because he, he's gone before us. But there's a big difference between me and Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And I am not. Which fundamentally changes that relationship from being my buddy to being the one that I worship. God determines how we worship. Not us. Because we can quickly start to worship broken, limited, and wrong things. In your life, as we, as we begin this new series, as we begin this new way of approaching our Lord, let's start there. What are the things that, get, that take my attention off of worshiping Jesus above everything else? What are the things that I, I, I distract myself with instead of having Jesus as the top priority? Jesus is the focus of that first commandment. What causes our eyes to drop where it's not Jesus that we're worshiping, but broken, limited things in the world? God's the one that determines how we worship, not us. God is the one that leads us into worship because he's the one we meet in worship and he's the one we raise up in worship. Not us. 
As we continue through this series, as we continue through this Lenten season, we're going to break open a few more concepts. But this is the foundational and fundamental principle that we have to come to have a clear understanding on, is that God cares about how we worship him, because he's inviting us into a particular way of worship. And number two, God is the one who determines how we worship, not us. Because he's God, and we're not. Maybe as we approach the end of this Mass, as, as we continue into this Mass, as we, as we come to the Liturgy of the Eucharist, what are the things that compete for our attention? What are the things that our eyes fall to? Pleasure, comfort, whatever it is, let's lift that up to the Lord as a sacrifice today.